Well, good morning. We're continuing to walk through the Gospel of Matthew. And in chapters 18 and 19, we've been in a series on the need for re-education and kingdom values. Jesus brings the kingdom in his first coming, and we now, the people of the king, are to put that rule into effect and show the world what it looks like to be a forgiven people who live under the good rule of our great high king. And our values, therefore, are going to be countercultural. They're not going to be the values of the world. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's characterized by paradoxical values, not what we would think, because, of course, we are to be distinct. Going back to chapter 5, we're to be salt, we're to be light, we're to be a contrast society. So, so far, we've looked at marriage and divorce and singleness and dating, and today we turn to children. So if you've got a Bible, it's Matthew chapter 19, as Ms. Text just read. If you're using one of ours there, it's page 774. It's just a few verses, so I just want to read it again. Matthew 19, 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So a very brief picture here, but an important one. Someone brings these children to Jesus, and notice, I think that's important, they are brought to him. They're very likely very small children or perhaps infants. In Mark's gospel of this same story, his account says that Jesus took them up in his arms. And so small children, and Jesus must have been a welcoming person. You don't just bring your children to anybody. He must have had a warm and a gracious disposition, a reputation as one who welcomed children. Warm and gracious nature. And, well, the disciples, once again, are out of line with Jesus. Their minds are on earthly things, not the things of the kingdom. So they rebuke the people. Jesus is too important for your children. They scolded the parents for bothering the Lord with such insignificant little people. Remove these nuisances from the presence of the Messiah. Now, lest we be too harsh on the disciples, in many ways they're just breathing the air of their day. In their day, children were not esteemed. In ancient Rome, children were regularly abandoned, even infants regularly abandoned. They called it exposure. And one of the marks of the early church was they would often go and rescue these abandoned babies. Also, in the ancient world, the disciples were just thinking like the rest of the culture, that children were not a part of a man's job. And so they seek to dismiss them for more important things. Well, how does the king of the world reply? Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he lays his hands on them and went away. Again, Mark's account says Jesus was indignant with his disciples. Jesus to his disciples, you don't know what I'm about yet, do you? Still haven't quite caught on, have you? You're thinking about the worldly kingdom, not my kingdom. Yeah, I've got an important thing to do, like save the world. But what you miss is the main way that I'm saving the world is through babies, through children. It says the kingdom belongs to such. What does he mean by that? You remember chapter 18? feels like months ago, but basically the same page in our Bible. Look back there at chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, 
he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So again, the ancient world didn't have a high view of kids, and the reason was really their social status. Jesus is not saying become humble because most kids aren't humble. Jesus is not saying become innocent because if you have kids, you know that's not true. He's talking about the lowly status. So what he's saying is that greatness in the kingdom comes not by selfish ambition and the desire to have power and be known to be great, but instead by taking the position of the social scale of children, lowest on the totem pole, bottom of the pecking order. The kingdom belongs to people who take on the low position, weak, dependent, vulnerable, unable, passive, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Those that the world disqualifies or dismisses. The values of the upside-down kingdom are counterintuitive. And greatness in the kingdom requires the path not of upward mobility, but downward mobility. And so children are not to be minimized, dismissed, but prioritized in the kingdom of Christ. You think you're too great for children? You're defining great in the wrong way. This is greatness, Jesus says. Jesus values children, therefore we must value children. In fact, look at the next verse there in chapter 18, verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus is serious about this. Whoever welcomes a child welcomes Jesus. To be Christ-like is to be pro-children. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, children are not a distraction from the most important work. They are the most important work. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for the church today? Five ways. Value kids. Have kids. Rescue kids. Serve kids and disciple kids. How can we be like Jesus? Number one, value kids. We are pro-children. And if we're not pro-children, the main call of the Christian life is to become like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And Jesus is pro-children, so we need to grow into it. Let them come to me. Do not hinder them. And I think we have that right around here. But it's also good to remind ourselves it's not the norm out there. I read this week that there are now more dogs in the United States than children under 18. 76 million dogs, 73 million under 18. So to have a bunch of kids running around, it's not the norm, even in churches. You know, when we have guests, and specifically when I have friends come through Southside, they always mention two things. They're always super encouraged by two things. It's never the preaching. (laughs) It's number one, how strong you sing. Praise God for how strong you sing. It's so encouraging. And sadly, a little unique. And so people are struck. Wow, this congregation sings strong. And then the second thing they always mention, there are kids everywhere. (laughs) There are kids running around everywhere. By the way, while I have the opportunity, let me just coach a little bit. The parents, we want that. But specifically, before service and after service, let's tighten up a little bit. Because we, it can get a little wild. And if a child uh, takes one of our senior citizens out at the knee, the child's going to keep running. But that may set back the senior citizen weeks or months. So let's, let's, let's improve there a little bit on our kids running around. Let's have them walk after service. 
It's a good challenge to have, though. It's a good challenge to have. So we're pro-kids, pro-children. Listen to my man J.C. Ryle, bishop in England, 1800s, speaking of these verses. Let us draw from these verses encouragement to attempt great things in the religious instruction of children. Let us begin from their earliest years to deal with them as having souls to be lost or saved. And let us strive to bring them to Christ. Let us make them acquainted with the Bible as soon as they can understand anything. Let us pray with them and pray for them and teach them to pray for themselves. We may rest assured that Jesus looks with pleasure on such endeavors and is ready to bless them. We may rest assured that such endeavors are not in vain. The seed sown in infancy is often found after many days. Happy is that church whose infant members are cared for as much as the oldest communicants. The blessing of him that was crucified will surely be on that church. He put his hands on little children. He prayed for them. And so we're pro-kids. We focus on and prioritize the next generation. Turn with me over to Psalms. Again, open your Bible basically in the middle and turn to the left. You'll find the Psalms. Turn to Psalm 127 with me. Look at Psalm 127, verse 3. Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. An inheritance, a heritage, a reward like arrows. They're useful. Arrows are weapons for warfare. That's what arrows are. An arrows in the hand of a warrior. And blessed is the man who has many of them. Keep reading there. Psalm 128. Blessed. Again, the word blessed in the Bible means happy. Is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, a bringer of joy like wine. Your children will be like olive shoots, full of energy and potential, productive. They, olive shoots would produce food and oil and wood around your table. Behold, thus shall be the man, the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So we're pro-kids just like God is pro-kids, just like the son is pro-kids. Number two, we value kids. Number two, we have kids. If you're married and able, have kids. Have as many as you can. Married believers should not choose to remain childless deliberately and permanently unless there's some clear infirmity or unusual circumstance. And I know many of you have battled infertility, which is dreadfully painful. But I'll mention fostering here in a minute as a God-honoring way and viable way to move forward. Listen to the way the Catechism of the Catholic Church puts it. Protestants and Catholics agree on this, at least used to. By its very nature, the institution of marriage and married love is ordered 
to the procreation and education of the offspring, and it is in them that it finds its crowning glory. The crowning glory of marriage is children. And so have kids. If you have kids and you're wondering, I don't know, you know, maybe you're early on, maybe we should have three, maybe we should have four, I would just say, think about rounding up. <laughs> I'm hesitant to say that with a nursery that's overflowing. In Scripture, the average household had 6.1 kids. I'm describing, I'm not prescribing, just telling you. That in the Bible, the average house was 6.1. You know what it is today? It's 1.6. We need 2.1 for the modern population to replace itself. You know what it is in Afghanistan? 4.2. 1.6 in America, 4.2. So have kids if you're married and you're able. There's a blog post I read this week. It was a couple years old, but it was just talking about how fast the culture has changed. Specifically with the decision, Obergefell decision in 2015 and, and just how quickly the culture has just been denigrated, demoralized, specifically when it comes to sexuality. And so there's lots of ways the church can respond to that. And this post was talking about an, an old culture war strategy. He called it a new, a new one, although it's very old. It's Pastor Kevin DeYoung, and it's a little bit long, but I thought it was worth sharing with you. Kevin DeYoung says, I'm, I'm grateful for serious Christians involved in the political arena. What happens in D.C. matters. Elections have consequences, but families have more. To marshal our energies as if political victories were more important than strengthening the family is a decidedly unconservative position. I'm not calling for abandoning politics, but I'm asking the question, what does it profit a man if he gets textualist on the Supreme Court but loses his own children? Here's a culture war strategy conservative Christians should get behind. Have more children and disciple them like crazy. Strongly consider having more children than you think you can handle. You don't have to be a fertility maximalist to recognize that children are always lauded as a blessing in the Bible. Do you want to rebel against the status quo? You want people to ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you? Tote your brood of children through Target. <laughs> There's almost nothing more countercultural than having more children. And once we have those children, there's almost nothing more important than catechizing them in the faith, developing their moral framework, and preparing them to be deeply compassionate lovers of God and lovers of people and relentlessly biblical lovers of truth. I understand that being a good parent does not guarantee believing children. I understand that many couples will be unable to have children they want to have. We have to allow for God to work in mysterious ways that we would not have planned. And yet, insofar as we're able, let us welcome new life and give our children the best opportunity for new birth. Presidents and Supreme Court justices will come and go. A child's soul will last forever. The future belongs to the fecund. It's time for happy warriors who seek to renew the city and win the culture war by investing in their local church, focusing on the family, and bringing the kingdom to bear on the world one baby at a time, end quote. Well, marriage is for babies. We make love. God makes life incredibly. First command of the Bible, be fruitful 
multiply, rule the world on God's behalf. Listen to the prophet Malachi, chapter 2, verse 15. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you're his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. God is seeking godly offspring through godly marriages. This is his main way. There are other ways, but this is his main way of expanding his kingdom. Martin Luther put it this way. This at least all married people should know. They can do no better work and do nothing more valuable, either for God, for Christendom, for all the world, for themselves and for their children, than to bring up children well. So we value kids. We have kids. Number three, we rescue children. We rescue kids. What are the implications for Jesus' view of children on abortion? Well, it's crystal clear, isn't it? At least it should be. Abortion's in the news more than ever and is really probably one of the greatest blind spots in America. 60 million babies in this country. To give you a little perspective, it's four times the combined population of New York City, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Think about that. Combined population, New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, times four. The streets of America flow with the blood of infants. And abortion is not good for the moms either. It's the fifth leading cause of maternal death in the U.S. No one talks about it. Post-abortive women have higher rates of drug and alcohol abuse, suicidal thoughts and attempts. More likely to seek counseling or hospitalization for depression. Which is why we're so thankful of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe it's someone you know. You know what you need is you need the gospel of Jesus. There's grace. There's forgiveness for any and all sin. You trust in Christ who lived the life you should have lived and died the death you deserved to die. And your sins are forgiven. Guilt removed. Consciences cleansed. It's only the gospel that can be our hope and the hope of couples who've aborted their babies. So thankful for the gospel. And this is also why we're so thankful for the overturning of Roe recently. But again, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, the battle's not over at all. In fact, I think it's really ramping up because the left has literally gone mad on this issue. You know, you used to could find pro-life Democrats, but those days are over. Right now, there are even Democratic lawmakers pressuring Google to prevent crisis pregnancy centers from showing up in search results in Google Ads and Google Maps. Simply incredible. They claim that pro-life pregnancy centers are, quote, fake clinics that traffic in misinformation and don't provide comprehensive health services. You know what they mean? They won't kill the baby. They also argue that pro-life pregnancy clinics are, quote, dangerous to women's health. And that appearance in search results, quote, undermines the integrity of Google's search results. Just incredibly wicked. They don't care about women. They're not actually pro-choice. They want no choice but abortion. So we can celebrate just for a moment. We have to realize it's just beginning. I don't know if you saw Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren recently. These words are astounding. She said, quote, crisis pregnancy centers are there to fool people looking for pregnancy termination help. 
and they outnumber true abortion clinics by three to one. We need to shut them down here in Massachusetts, and we need to shut them down all around the country. Not even giving an option. Just wicked. And this culture of death is not going anywhere, and it's even infiltrated liberal churches. I couldn't believe this. Listen to this from the Episcopal Church. They promoted abortion, and then they gave this resolution at their recent annual meeting. This is the Episcopal Christian Church, quote, resolved the House of Bishops concurring that the 80th General Convention denounces the work of crisis pregnancy centers. also known as Pregnancy Resource Centers. And be it further resolved that the 80th General Convention apologizes for the church's previous support of crisis pregnancy centers, as detailed in Resolution 1994-D105. Denouncing and apologizing for supporting the work of crisis pregnancy centers in the Christian church? You know what the Proverbs say? He who hates wisdom loves death. When in reality, pregnancy resource centers are doing some of the most significant ministry out there. And they're going to need help in a post-row world. Last year, 2021, 3,000 crisis pregnancy centers in the U.S. provided 486,000 free ultrasounds, 731,000 free pregnancy tests, and 967,000 free consultations with new clients. Such important work. And you know, when mamas are able to see that baby, it's a game changer. And sometimes I think we can hear about the atrocities of abortion and feel helpless, like, okay, what can I do? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me lay out four options to fight for life, to rescue children. Number one, vote. Do you know that Texas, the state of Texas, is 56 to 58% pro-choice? Do you know that Abilene, Texas, is 54% pro-choice? You say, I don't believe that. I didn't either. When in reality, demographically, Abilene is 88% pro-life. What's the issue? Pro-life people don't vote. Pro-death people do. And so we got to vote. This November... Vote for life. There's a lot of reasons to vote in November, but for one, here in Abilene, there's going to be an ordinance that's going to come to ballot to make Abilene a sanctuary city for the unborn. You may say, hey, there's no need for that. Rose overturned. Abilene doesn't have an abortion clinic. You're right, and this will ensure that they never do. Early voting begins October 24th. Election day is November 8th. Vote for life. Number two, get involved in foster care. Abilene has a huge need for foster parents. Several ways you can serve neglected or abandoned children. Obviously, you can foster, have several families. In fact, if you're involved in any way, even if you're just doing homework about foster care right now, involved in any way, would you just raise your hand so people can recognize? A little higher, a little higher. Several people across the congregation. What a huge need. What a vital, precious, but incredibly hard ministry. And so if you're open to it at all, let me just encourage you to do a little homework prayerfully do some homework about foster care. If you're like, you've talked about it and you are just kind of been on the fence, let me just encourage you to take a step, maybe begin some training. God doesn't steer parked cars. And if you're ready to foster, we're going to have your back. So we partner with Foster 325. 
which is a ministry that comes along and helps. We've got a lot of people already. In fact, we've got more foster 325 people than we have foster parents. We need more foster parents so we can come around and help. There'll be some information in the worship center, uh, right, the welcome center behind us after service. Melissa, are you in here? Wave, wave. Melissa, there she is over there. She'll be over there around the foster 325 banner. See her. They have a, a babysitter respite class on September 10th. It'll be in our email. So you can foster, you can serve with Foster 325 as a wraparound family for our foster parents. We also now, mentioned this a few weeks ago, it's sort of a temporary foster option with Safe Families. Mentioned this a few, t- few months ago, and Safe Families is where we care for a child for a short amount of time. So basically, we're helping usually a single mom get on her feet. So we have a host home who takes a baby, usually under five years old. The average stay is about 40 days. And cares for the child while we and others help mama get back on her feet. And we build the relationship. We care for the child and put the child back in the home and we keep the relationship. Safe families, if you're interested in learning more, email Taylor. There's his email. There's also some brochures in the, worship, in the Welcome Center. And there's different roles. So the most challenging role is going to be the host family. But there's other roles that we can do. We've got enough people in this church ready to help that if you want to learn more about this, let us know. When we have a team together, we want to begin receiving children. So you can foster, you can deal with foster 325, save families. Third way is to get involved here at our local pregnancy resource center. We do support them monthly as a church. So your giving supports them, but they also regularly need volunteers, counselors, resources. Specifically, they ask for this. Right, right now they're in need of these diapers, specifically these sizes, this type of formula. It's hard to find. So you can go grab those, put them on your regular grocery list, drop them by, Abilene, prabilene.com. You want a resource, you want to serve, you want to volunteer. Just last month, eight ladies came in considering abortion. Five of them chose life. Last month, they did 122 tests, 40 ultrasounds. Gave out 236 baby supplies. Good work that will need our help. And a fourth way for all of us as we have these conversations is to advocate for life. Advocate for life. This is in the news. It's probably not going anywhere. So with your non-Christian friends... Speak, defend life. Due to medical technology, the debate has really changed. We now all know that life begins at conception. Recent dissertation surveyed almost 6,000 biologists. 96% of them affirmed the view that a human being begins at fertilization. Now, the media doesn't want people to know that. But it's just basic science and biology today. We can see it. There's a man named Scott Klusendorf who's really done some wonderful work on simplifying the issues to help us advocate. And the argument goes like this. Premise one, grab that back up there. It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills innocent human beings. Conclusion, therefore, abortion is morally wrong. It's that simple. Now, there'll be disagreements, but now we know from both science and philosophy that this is a sound argument. We can show from science that the unborn are, in fact, human beings. They are distinct. They are different in kind from any cell of the parent. It's not part of the woman's body. It's distinct. It's living. We, we see them react in some of the most dreadful videos you can see is the fetus reacting to the needle being inserted. They feel pain at the earliest weeks. 
They're living. They react. They convert food to energy. They grow. They're a whole human being. They come from humans. They have a human makeup. They're fully programmed. We didn't come from an embryo. We were an embryo. And so premise one is wrong to kill innocent human beings. We know from science that the unborn are human beings. But we can also argue from philosophy that there's no relevant difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that justifies killing you at the earlier stage of development. Klusendorf uses the, the acronym SLED. Go to the next slide. Think about size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency. So differences of size doesn't justify murder. We've got big people and small people in this room. Level of development doesn't, doesn't justify murder. We've got different levels of development in this room. Same with the iron environment. That doesn't matter. Degree of dependency doesn't matter either. Philosophically, there's no good reason that you could kill you then but not kill you now. So advocate for life. Google Scott Klusendorf. Learn some of the rhetoric. It's helpful, clear things we need to be equipped in our day and age. And then number four. So we rescue children. Number four, we serve children. Serve children. Welcome them. Receive them. Lots of ways to do this around here. We often mention our, one of our partners in ministry, House of Faith. House of Faith is a local neighborhood ministry. You can serve as much as you want, as minimal as you want, even one night a week if you would like, or be on a rotation. Seek and care for kids, most of whom come from broken homes right here in our backyard. Email us if you'd like more information. See Christy Wilson, Chris and Sarah Mathis, others. Several of our members are already involved. Serve kids. You knew it was coming. Nursery. <laughs> if you're a member and you're good with kids, jump on our nursery rotation. It's, it's a co-op Co-op. We want to serve kids and we want to serve other families by serving in nursery. So if you're not on the rotation, reach out to Stephen White, our family minister, Stephen at ssbaptist.org. Great way to serve families and be like Jesus. We've got the 80-20 rule going on in some ways where 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work. Let's blow that out of the water at Southside. You know what the, the, one of the best indicators of a healthy church is? There's a line in the nursery volunteer. There's a line of people ready to serve. Here's how Stephen put it. Here's his plug. If you've ever prayed for more patience, more self-control, more joy and laughter in your life, and God is handing an opportunity to cultivate all that in one place, the nursery. <laughs> so serve children. And then fifth, disciple kids. Disciple kids. Closer to home, getting in the home. If you have children, if you have opportunity to influence grandchildren, bring them to Jesus. Make your life aim their discipleship. Give yourselves fully to it. They are in and out in a mist. And parents, this is your responsibility. I think too many parents think it's the church's responsibility to disciple kids. And listen, I promise you, we're going to do the very best we can to steward the little amount of time we have with your children. But at the end of the day, you are called to do it. If you're relying on us to do it, let me just be honest with you, we'll fail you. We just can't do it. We have very little time. With kids, and so you disciple your kids. We see the quote again and again and again that 70 to 75 percent of kids who grow up in the evangelical church leave the church once they leave the home. Truth of it is, they never had it. The vast majority of them never had it. Why? Because too many parents have thought that 30 minutes a week of flannel graph is going to be able to enough to disciple them against the secularism that they get 40 hours a week or more. I don't think we've taken our enemy seriously enough. 
The world, the flesh, and the devil are against us. They hate us, and they hate our children. Satan is the father of lies. The Bible says his native language, his native tongue is lies. So parents, you've got to ask, what lies are your kids believing? What lies are your kids hearing? How will a Satan, how will Satan, whose native tongue is lies, how will he lie to your kids? You've got to know. You've got to know how the lies will get there. Mainly through technology, social media, shows, screens, music, curriculum, books, teachers, peers. Kids will be discipled. That's what we've got to understand. Discipleship will take place. The question is by who? Listen to Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by empty philosophy and deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, demons, and not according to Christ. And so, parents, you've got to be awake. You've always had to be awake. It's clear more than ever. In America, you've got to be awake. You've got to realize that it's take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ or be taken captive by empty philosophy. See to it that no one takes you captive. The world is seeking to disciple your children. Neutrality is a myth. There is no neutrality. As C.S. Lewis said, every square second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by the enemy. We've got to be awake. You've got to disciple children. So how can you disciple? Well, lots of ways, but let me just mention two in closing. Number one, practice family worship. Number two, bring them to corporate worship. Number one, practice family worship at home. Again, my man Ryle, long quote, just so good. Fathers and mothers, you may take your children to be baptized and have them enrolled in the ranks of Christ's church. You may get godly sponsors to answer for them and help you by their prayers. You may send them to the best of schools and give them Bibles and prayer books and fill them with head knowledge. But if all this time there is no regular training at home, I tell you plainly, I fear it will go hard in the end with your children's souls. Home is the place where habits are formed. Home is the place where the foundations of character are laid. Home gives the bias to our tastes and likings and opinions. See then, I pray you, that there be careful training at home. Happy indeed is the man who can say, as Bolton did upon his dying bed to his children, I do not believe one of you will dare to meet me before the tribunal of Christ in an unregenerate States. So disciple your kids at home and dads, you're called to lead out in this manner. And listen, if you haven't done anything, own it. The heart of masculinity is a refusal to make excuses. Own it and rise up and resolve to do better from this day forward. The hardest part is beginning. I mean, you're called to lead the home spiritually. Moms, if you're single or if your husband's not a believer, you step up and lead. But homes that have believing dads, God calls you to lead out in this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. One of the best ways to do this is family worship. This is a small piece, but having family worship. I say go for every night. You'll miss. That's okay. Go for every night. What is family worship? Read, pray, sing. Find a time that works for you. Maybe it's bedtime, maybe it's breakfast, maybe it's dinner. But have a slot 
where as a family, you're gathered and you read something from the Bible, you read a Bible storybook, you read Christian literature commenting on the Bible, do a little catechism, did question 31 today, we'll do 32 next week, read, sing a song. We post what we're going to be singing, we've got a Spotify playlist, we send it out in the email, post it on our Facebook page, be singing songs that we will be singing on Sundays, read, sing, and then close in prayer. Very simple, very short. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. Job description of parents. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Diligently. And shall talk of them. We're talking about the word here. Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. All the time. The word is on your lips to your children. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Here's the job description for parents. Saturate your home with the word of God. Talk about it all the time. So this is a whole lot more comprehensive than just 10 minutes. This is when you rise, when you talk, when you lie. This is where the word is on our tongues constantly. Read, sing, pray. Spurgeon put it this way. I agree with Matthew Henry when he says, they that pray in the family do well. They that pray and read the scriptures do better. But they that pray and read and sing do best of all. So practice family worship. Maybe you've fallen off, jump back on. Maybe you never started, begin. Secondly, bring them to corporate worship. Preaching to the choir a little bit here. But you know and need to know that we're distinct in many ways. In that, we want children here with us in corporate worship. Al Mohler says that one of the scandals of evangelicalism is that people send their kids to their rooms when they get to church. Our kids are functionally brought up unchurched. Well, here at Southside, we intentionally do not offer children's church during our main corporate church service for children three years old or older. We do offer age-appropriate things at 9 o'clock and midweek. Encourage to come, have your kids gain. We'll supplement what you're doing at home. But we want them here with their families in the service. We welcome the squirms and the wiggles and the giggles. We'll say, please do take your kids to the restroom before the service starts. But we get it. It happens. Kids in here is a big deal for us. We want them hearing. And we want them participating as we sing the word and pray the word and hear the word preached and see the word displayed and obeyed in communion and baptism. Why? Well, this is the way the church has done it for all of history. That's one reason. But more importantly, it's the biblical pattern. Everywhere in Scripture, it's assumed that children are a part of the gathered congregation. Listen to Joshua chapter 8. We read that Joshua read the law before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones. Joel 2.16, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, the spirit through the apostle addresses children directly. They were in the assembled congregation. They weren't in kids' church. Paul talked to them. They were to be present with their families gathered with the people of God. Now listen, I know it can be hard. It takes a little bit of training, a little time, but kids adjust pretty fast. 
And Sunday morning church begins on Saturday night, so plan for it. Plan out the clothing, plan out the breakfast, read the passage beforehand, sing the songs. You'll come in here ready and ripe. I just get so encouraged thinking about the cumulative effects of week after week of word-centered ministry. kid who grows up at Southside is going to sit under some 900 services. The Bible says faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. And if you're doing family worship at home, There'll be this continuity between home and church, as there should be. Here's how Jonathan Edwards put it. Every Christian family ought to be, as it were, a little church. So the values of the kingdom of Christ, value children, have children, rescue children, serve children, and disciple children with all you've got. Let's pray.